Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Stuart Reed. Stuart is the chief scientist at Numerical Research. Stuart, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. It's um, really great to be speaking to you. I've been listening to the podcast for, for a long time now, so it's great. Uh, and I'm really glad we were able to connect. If This one has taken a while to put together for a variety of reasons. We initially connected around the time, uh, kind of in the run-up to the deep learning in DABA, which you participated in. And uh, for whatever reason, it's taken us a bit to connect, but uh, welcome once again. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pretty busy week during the deep learning in DABA, so I'm not surprised that it took a while, but uh, good to finally be speaking to you. So why don't we get started with a little bit of your background. You are currently focused on applying AI to finance. How did you, uh, how did you get here? Yeah, so I think that my interest in technology itself predates my interest in finance. Um, I was actually the youngest South African to get an amateur radio license when I was 11. Oh, wow. um, and that's kind of when I got into technology um, but soon afterwards, I discovered finance, um, started out with the traditional books by, you know, Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham on security analysis and how do you actually value companies. And then that slowly shifted into some of the more modern approaches uh, taken by like Renaissance Technologies and DE Shaw and AQR. And that's really quantitative finance. So that interest is actually what propelled me to study uh, computer science in the first place. And you're now, uh, again, chief scientist at Numerical Research. What does Numerical Research do? Yeah, so Numerical Research is a startup financial services provider based in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Um, we have two investment funds, which are run entirely by machine learning algorithms. Um, so that's what we do. We're using uh, deep learning algorithms for the most part to predict what is going to happen in global financial markets, which Sounds like the best idea ever, but it's uh, incredibly challenging uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, and we will get into those. The kind of way you framed your presentation, as I understand it, at the Indaba was around the application of machine learning to kind of the broader class of problems that you see in uh, financial markets. And that is... Uh, a specific type of time series analysis. Uh, and you made a, a distinction when we were talking before we got started between uh, stationary versus non-stationary time series. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, you know, a stationary time series is really one which is sampled from a distribution which doesn't change. Uh, so that fits quite nicely with your traditional machine learning paradigm, which is where you are fundamentally assuming that your data generating process is constant or very slowly time varying. But financial markets are, are anything but stationary. They're continuously changing. Um, in fact, I would go as far as to say that the markets themselves are adversarial. Um, they don't really want you to succeed. Uh, and this gets into the whole debate of like market efficiency. So my focus is very much on how can we get deep learning algorithms which were designed to work in a stationary environment under some reasonably strict assumptions, 
um, how can we get those algorithms to now work in an environment where you can not only experience a lot of non-stationary, but experience extreme shifts in the distribution of the data that is being generated? Uh, so these kind of points are regime shifts, structural breaks, critical transitions, change points. There's many names for them in the literature, but I prefer change points. And so what are the the main challenges that you see in in doing this? Do you, are there, you know, is it just hard or are there distinct challenges that you can point to in trying to apply machine learning and deep learning to these types of time series? Okay. Uh, yeah, no, there are some very specific challenges. Uh, but let me first take a step back and say that if you are interested in applying deep learning algorithms to financial markets, there are uh, more problems than just non-stationarity and kind of like this adversarial behavior. Uh, you also have a very um, challenging problem with signal-to-noise. Uh, so there's a lot of noise in financial markets. In fact, most derivatives that are priced these days are, pr are priced using random walk models. Uh, and that's kind of where my fascination with randomness comes in. But also markets are challenging because of this non-stationarity. Uh, but there are a number of different challenges associated with trying to predict time series which can abruptly change from one distribution to another one. And that's, you know, can we actually detect these change points in a timely manner? Uh, and how many of these, of these change points are actually going to occur? Is it a one-self kind of transition, as you might see in some ecological systems, uh, or is it a multi-way kind of transition, kind of like we have in finance, where you cycle between maybe a low volatility and a high volatility regime or between a bear market and a bull market? Then the next challenge is uh, the duration of that change point. So you can have change points which are extremely abrupt. Um, like, for example, if we're using change point analysis or machine learning algorithms to identify the onset of uh, an attack on a network, like network intrusion detection. That's a very instantaneous kind of change in the distribution in that network activity. Whereas in financial markets, it's actually generally a slightly slower transition. And, um, and that can actually make it harder to detect because it's lots of small changes which kind of add up and eventually become a very large uh, regime shift. Also, Another challenge is, is the extensiveness of the regime shift. Uh, is this regime shift or is this change point affecting the entire model which we've trained or is it just affecting a subset of the model? Is it just affecting the part of the model which is looking at interest rates or the part of the model which is looking at currencies? Um, and then the other two challenges is the magnitude, so very large or very small um, shifts and, and where those shifts are happening, and then the certainty around this. So how confident are we that we've identified a real change in the distribution as opposed to just an outlier um, or an anomaly in the data. Uh, so those are, those are kind of like the challenges that, um, that you're presented with when you're trying to use um, deep learning algorithms to predict time series which are non-stationary and can have these abrupt transitions. And when you're faced with uh, those very distinct challenges, do you attempt to kind of pick them off one by one or do they kind of together lead you to a, a class of solutions to, you know, this general problem that has good properties for some subset of the challenges? Uh, that's a very good question. 
Uh, I have definitely taken a very non-linear approach to <laughs> solving this, uh, this set of problems. In fact, I've only realized that some of them are problems quite recently. Um, and it's kind of like an ongoing area of research for me. Um, but generally, what, um, what kind of spurred the interest was that we, we developed this framework at, uh, at Numerical, and we were training all of these different models. And um, one of the early things I, I noticed is that the best models were generally the ones which got the financial crisis right, like in terms of their predictions. Um, so that motivated me to take a look at those models and try and work out, you know, or, you know, what made them get it right. And I think for the most part, it was luck for those models. Um, but then I got really interested in these kind of like change points, because the reality is that um, significant changes in the distribution of financial markets, not only affects how you should make your investment decisions, which affects everybody's retirement savings and their ability to do things, um, but also policy changes, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, how the government should decide to set interest rates or how it should behave in situations like trade wars, um, you know, these kind of things. So my approach to it was very much uh, from an applied perspective. It was like, this is an interesting problem. And then I tried a whole bunch of different things to try and solve that problem and then slowly began to see that it was a very common problem, which um, actually, you know, arises in many different areas, not just finance and economics, but also in statistical quality control in manufacturing, speech recognition, medical condition monitoring, um, you know, disaster prediction, if we're talking about like earthquakes, um, you know, network intrusion detection, there's a there's a whole bunch of really interesting ideas. And then through looking at all of the different applications, kind of piece together the theory and what the challenges are when you're looking at these kinds of time series. And what's interesting is that different parts of the literature from different domains are focusing on different subproblems. Like duration of the change point is a much bigger issue uh, in ecology, for example, than in network intrusion detection. Um, so I hope that kind of answers the question. It's a very good question. I, I have no idea. I'm just kind of going at it and seeing what happens. <laughs> You mentioned that one of the ways you uh, or one of the the hallmarks of a good model is the ability to predict uh, the financial crisis, which kind of suggests to me that, you know, the, the main thing you're doing to test here is kind of back testing against uh, historical uh, financial data. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm wondering is what exactly when we say, you know, a model or these models, like, you know, what exactly are we talking about? Is it one model that predicts the price of, you know, the S and P or some portfolio, or do you have models for individual securities or are you modeling, you know, some of the subcomponents that you mentioned, like interest rates and bond prices and things like that? Like how granular are, are the models that you're developing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think backtesting is a little bit of a swear word um, in finance. Oh, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's what not, did I just walk into? <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, not uh, not at all. I mean, most people call it backtesting. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the term because um, backtesting kind of implies that we have some model. It has some parameters, and what we do is we pick a whole bunch of different parameters. We run uh, a simulation on historical data, and we see which one did the best. 
And then generally that's the one that we pick going forward. And, and that's a very, very bad way to actually go about finding a good investment process because inevitably what you're going to do is you're going to curve it. You're going to, you're going to memorize the historical data and you're going to pick very suboptimal parameters going into the future. Mm -hmm. So what we prefer to do is really like a walk forward um, simulation through time, which arises a whole bunch of additional challenges. One of the challenges that we have in finance, which doesn't exist in, in some areas is this issue of survivorship bias. So for example, the S&P 500, as you mentioned today, like the constituents of that mm -hmm. are not the same as the S&P 500 from 1980 or 1995. Uh, you actually have stocks coming in and coming out. And more recently, you have a lot of, of stocks going out and, and fewer like staying in that S&P for a long period of time. So we have this kind of like non-stationarity, not only in the time series dimension, but also in the cross section. So like what stocks are we actually looking at at any particular point in time? And we can't just pick the S&P 500 today and run a simulation on that because then we've introduced a massive bias. None of the stocks in our simulation can fail, um, which is obviously not at all reality. In reality, you have you know, Enrons, which uh, which completely fail and Worldcoms, which also completely fail. So the process that we've taken has been quite systematic. It's like, how can we construct data sets which are truly representative of what the market looked like at that point in time? And, um, and as far as what models we're using go, uh, we started off quite simple. Then we very much focused on the recurrent models, uh, recurrent deep neural networks. And lately, we've actually had a lot of success with uh, convolutional neural networks for time series analysis, which also seems to be picking up in the literature. And generally, we're looking at multivariate time series prediction. Uh, and I think that that's interesting because there is this whole covariance matrix that you're trying to model. It's not just about you know, if we can predict what the stock is going to do into the future, it's how this stock is going to influence, you know, these other stocks in the universe and how they evolve through time together as a as a collective. Um, so as far as the number of models go, uh, we actually want to have many, many different models, and then we kind of stack them together to generate better and better predictions. I think in our funds at the moment, we've got about 2000 neural networks in production. Uh, which is a challenge in and of itself. The engineering challenge is, is you know, distinctly different to the, the theoretical challenge of how do you actually get the model to work in the first place? Mm -hmm. uh, and those are continuously generating a lot of information, not just predictions, but measures of their confidences in those predictions, measures of their errors in the predictions. Um, yeah, so there's a lot going on. And can you speak at all to the the granularity of those individual models or those 2000 models all targeting, trying to predict the performance of some basket of securities or you, you, I'm imagining you're modeling different kind of underlying fundamentals. Is that the case? Yeah. So definitely looking at different things in different models, um, but also using different inputs into different models to generate those predictions. We're trying to come up with a very diverse set of predictions, which we can then ensemble over. As far as the granularity of the data itself goes, this is another challenge uh, that you get in finance, which maybe you don't get in other spaces, is that you have some really, really important data, which only comes out quarterly. 
Um, you know, if we're talking about like unemployment numbers or we're talking about GDP and, you know, all of these things obviously have an impact on the markets because people are looking at them and they're using that to make investment decisions on like which countries they should be allocating capital to and which uh, sectors in those countries they should be allocating to and then which stocks. Um, but then you have this very high frequency data as well. So you've got price data, which is continuously coming at you. You've got volatility data. Um, and what you want is a model which can actually weigh all of these time series, which may be occurring at very different time scales together in an unbiased way. Um, yeah, it's a very hard problem. I'm not sure that we've got a perfect solution to it yet, but we've tried a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, ensembling is is the most obvious approach, and it's something that's worked quite well for us. Are you also incorporating in um, like natural language processing types of models or, or trying to get at information that's embedded in unstructured text and documents as well, or social media, uh, things like that? Yeah, this is a this is an interesting question because I'm actually a little bit of a sentiment skeptic. That's not to say that, you know, the sentiments that are extracted are wrong. Um, but just consider the statement, sales are down $40 million for the quarter. Now, that is clearly a negative sentiment, right? I mean, sales, they're down uh, for the quarter. But the reality is that if the analysts had expected sales to be down 60 million uh, and then they were only down 14, the market would actually probably rally in that situation. So I think that the challenge with sentiment analysis is really that there is a lot of context which is very hard um, to capture. So we've spent quite a bit of time working on natural language processing and, uh, and building these kind of like sentiment scores and including that in our models. And one of the other challenges with using deep neural networks in finance is, is obviously the problem of, of black box, right? Is that it's very hard to interpret the models. And you recently had Sarah on your show, and I really enjoyed the, the discussion that she had about uh, interpretability because some people in machine learning seem to think that interpretability is a non-issue. But uh, having spoken to many investors uh, and many people who are interested in using this technology, but from outside of uh, machine learning and, and computer science, um, interpretability is a big problem. So even if we did include these sentiment scores, it's actually quite challenging to work out if the model is, is using that data uh, and if it's using it in an optimal way. That's kind of like a segue into another like sub-conversation. Um, I mean, the, the main technique we're using there is really ablation studies and sensitivity analysis. But to answer the question, yeah, we've looked at uh, sentiment. I personally am a little bit of a skeptic, but that's maybe because I can't tell what my models are doing. So so the, the general approach that you're taking is one of ensembling lots of models. Some might argue that, you know, what you're doing is kind of feature engineering and with a sophisticated and deep enough neural network and enough of the right data, the network could figure all that stuff out on its own. And, and you should be looking at that. Have you, have you looked at that approach and like, how do yeah. you respond to, to that kind of approach? Criticism. I would say that that person is wrong. Uh, <laughs> that's that's how I would respond. Okay, so this is another interesting discussion. You are very good at asking questions. I'm very impressed. 
you know, in the machine learning community, you know, data is considered to be like unreasonably effective, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the more data you have, the better your model is going to be. Um, but my experience in trying to use, um, you know, deep learning and finance has been quite the opposite. And I think that the analogy that fits it best is really that the markets are kind of like a haystack and there are a few needles in there which correspond to, you know, signals which you can extract and actually profit from. And when I get more data, so I go wider, I'm looking at more time series from more locations and whatnot. Generally, what I'm doing is I'm just throwing more hay on top of that haystack. So one of the challenges that we have is that if I, and we're looking at about 400,000 independent time series at this stage, if I had to take all 400,000 of those time series and throw it into one model, uh, it would almost certainly fail. And the main reason why is because, um, because of two things. One is it's an incredibly wide data set. So you've got a lot of, of columns, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the other problem is that because this data is inherently non-stationary, and now we're getting back to kind of like my main focus area, you know, a very small subset of that data, if we're looking at, you know, a time horizon is actually relevant for predicting what's going to happen next. So your data kind of gets wider and wider and wider, but it's not necessarily getting deeper because, um, you know, the market fundamentally changed two years ago and, you know, including data from, you know, 2014 is not actually helping. It actually makes my models worse because it's learning from a regime which is no longer representative of the data which is being generated now in the process. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why ensembling is a good approach is because we can actually take that very wide data set and carve it up into different subsets and give it to smaller models and then kind of aggregate them and stack them in that way. Uh, it's very difficult to do feature engineering with a very, very big model when your data is more wide than it is deep. I guess that's kind of my answer to that question. Um, but I, I accept the criticism. Um, maybe I just don't have enough data. <laughs> One of the things that you talked about in your Indaba presentation, and, and if you're making the slides available to, to anyone, they're really, really interesting. And I'd encourage folks to... Um, take a look at them and we'd be happy to, to link to them or post them someplace. Uh, yeah, I will definitely do that. They're just hyper animated in PowerPoint. So I've just got to turn them into videos and then, but I will <laughs> do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so one of the things that you talked about in that deck was, uh, online learning, uh, which, you know, makes sense as a way to address this non-stationary, uh, nature of the signals that you're looking at. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you use online learning and what some of the, uh, you know, challenges and, uh, discoveries you've made there are? Yeah. Okay. So there are a lot of like intuitions and, and what I'm working on with, um, with my supervisor, I've actually decided to to try uh, postgraduate studies once again um, is to try and you know codify these uh, these ideas and, and publish some of them but online learning is is for for anybody who's listening is not familiar is really when you have a machine learning model and is trained on some data up to a current point in time and then what we do is we walk forward through time and we're using that model and we're just updating it on the most recent data which has happened. So there are a number of unique challenges uh, that you face when you're doing 
online learning, which is when you do kind of one pattern at a time, or incremental learning, which is when uh, you have a model, you move forward n steps, and then you update on the most recent n patterns or n plus some window size. So incremental kind of batch learning. And that's that by the time you have moved from, let's say, 2002 to 2007, you might have actually forgotten a lot of the stuff that you knew in 2002. The model has actually forgotten a lot of information, which means that when it enters into a regime such as the 2008 financial crisis, um, it actually doesn't know how to deal with that. Online learning is, is on the other hand, a very good approach because um, we have these different regimes. And if I had to just continuously include all of the available data in kind of like an expanding data set fashion, um, then my model would actually struggle to distinguish between the different regimes unless I had some sort of indicator of what regime the data was, was being sampled from. Um, that's one of the challenges. One of the other challenges which we were talking about in the office today actually is, is for example, regularization. And this is, I don't know if it's published in the literature and I'm not sure if I'm 100% right in what I'm saying. Um, but different parts of the information which we're training our models on matter at different points in time. So if we had to take a neural network and we had to train it on, let's say, you know, 2000 time series, and the first 500 time series were not relevant from the period 2002 to 2004. Slowly but surely, the regularization term in that neural network would push those weights uh, very close to zero, right? But let's say from the period from 2004 to 2006, those first 500 time series which weren't relevant in the past, now all of a sudden become relevant in, in the future. Um, then we have a challenge, which is that you know, we've actually pushed all of these weights very, very uh, close to zero. And now we actually want to grow those weights again, which which is just something which the models seem to struggle with through time. Um, and the other challenge is that maybe the last 1,500 time series are now not relevant from 2004 to 2006, and it pushes all of those weights down to zero. So a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the ideas that we can apply successfully at a particular point in time. So if we just had to train a model on a data set, deploy it into production, um, can cause problems when we're doing an online or incremental learning uh, approach. Uh, one of them is regularization. So, you know, that we, we tend to, to bias ourselves towards, uh, you know, dropout kind of approaches as opposed to L1 or L2 regularization. Um, but there are a lot of small issues like that. One of the topics that you mentioned uh, early on, but we haven't really dived into yet, is uh, the types of models that you're using. And that seems particularly relevant to, to this discussion. You know, when we think of uh, kind of time series and models with memory and uh, some of the, the comments you're making about, you know, models remembering and forgetting things, I tend to think of recurrent networks, uh, but it sounds like you're shifting increasingly to using uh, CNNs. Where does that uh, memorization element come from in a, a CNN? Yeah, so none of them are particularly good at remembering data, which is very far in the past. So let's say we, we have our data um, and it goes from 2002 all the way through to 2008. And we're training on two years worth of data or, or four years worth of data at a time. By the time we reach 2008, we're only really updating our model 
on data from 2004. You know, we've forgotten 2001, 2002. We've forgotten what a financial crisis looks like. And whether you're using a convolutional neural network or an LSTM or a GRU or, you know, just a feed-forward neural network, you're going to run into similar problems because that regime is no longer in the data that you're training on. So you will forget it. Um, so one of the techniques that I'm busy developing uh, with my supervisor is kind of this idea of um, storing historical versions of your models in some sort of like explicit memory bank. And then like, let's say you find 2008 and you're like, oh, my model is struggling. And we can identify that it's struggling by looking at, you know, change point analysis. And we can say, all right, well, there's been a significant change in the data. Uh, our historical data from 2007 and 2006 is no longer relevant. What do we do? Either we uh, reinitialize the model completely at that point in time, and we just hope to hell that it learns. Or what we could do is we could actually go backwards in time and we could say, well, is there a point in time historically, like from a long time ago, um, where we learned something, we learned a representation, which is relevant for the regime that we're in now? I hope that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I've heard of folks doing uh, similar things from uh, kind of at a model management perspective. So you've got some model in production and you've got uh, kind of a constant evaluation system and it determines that uh, the model's performance has degraded as opposed to, you know, just immediately triggering a retrain, you know, what some folks have done at least is to look at the historical models that have been in production and kind of test the current regime against those models and see if, you know, as opposed to just us moving into new territory, we've reverted into territory, you know, for which we've previously had a model and, yeah, you know, precisely. kind of switch to that one. Precisely. So that's exactly kind of the approach that I've been working on lately. Um, Although it sounds like in this case, at, at somewhat a lower level in a sense of uh, at the granularity of kind of the weights of the model or model, you know, subcomponents as opposed to kind of fully rolled uh, models in production or something like that. Yeah. So we're talking about like the weights. Right. So what we would do is we would walk forward through time and we would actually drop these weights onto some sort of explicit memory so that we can load them at a later date. Now, what I'm thinking, and I haven't built anything like this yet, but it's just like an idea that's in my head is really about whether we can model the transitions between those, because you can kind of think of the states that we're dropping onto this memory as uh, as being ready states in like some sort of like Markov process. Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of like where I'm heading with my research is whether we can model the transitions between these states and actually use it for, for simulation as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just an idea. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and so kind of going back to the application of convolutional networks in this case, uh, so you're, you're feeding the, the CNN. Yeah. Let's, let's call it a frame. Um, is that frame kind of a single point in time across uh, a single time series or a single point of time across multiple time series or uh, a historical frame that contains some time segments across, you know, one or more time series? Like what, what goes into the CNN? Oh yeah. Um, so we're, we're generally using like dilated 
convolutional neural networks. So, which um, means what? Ones, so ones which are preserving the the temporal structure of the data. So we're never feeding in, you know, um, historical or future data into a historical node. So it's it's always kind of like WaveNet. I don't know if you've seen the diagrams on on Google's blog. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's going in is really an image of um, where you've got your stocks on you know the on the columns and you've got a number of days at the bottom so we're feeding in kind of like a a picture which is a whole bunch of time series uh, put together um you know column by the amount of time yeah i hope that makes sense so if it's like 500 stocks and we're looking at you know 40 days worth of data uh, at a frequency of one data point per day, then it would be a 500 by 40 image, which is basically going into that convolutional neural network. Mm-hmm. And so the the difference between that kind of situation and um, something like an LSTM is that your memory, if you will, is kind of limited by this fixed window as opposed to some his, something that kind of sticks around to varying degrees indefinitely. Is that right? And, and what are the implications of that in the way you, you model? Yeah, so that is definitely true. Uh, and I must say that I was surprised myself that the convolutional neural networks generally perform quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have expected that. But we don't find a huge difference in the performance between our best convolutional neural networks and our best LSTM neural networks. Uh, or between the best, like Gru's. Um, generally, they're, they're all performing quite well. What makes a much bigger difference than architecture choice is the choice of other hyperparameters, like how much regularization are we are we adding, what kind of dropout are we using, how many layers are we using, because the challenge with the data that we're looking at is because it's non-stationary, we can't look at all of the historical data. We can only look at the historical data that is relevant, so sampled from the same regime that we're in. Um, which means that if we have a very, very over-parameterized network, like extremely large or extremely deep, uh, and then we shift into a new regime and we don't have that much data, uh, that model actually can't converge with the amount of data that we have. So what matters far more than the choice of architecture in our situation has really been the hyperparameters that we're choosing for those. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could tune an LSTM to beat our best uh you know, convolutional neural network or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that comes back to the free lunch theorem or <laughs> right. what. But they generally work differently. Um, and because they work differently, they can really come up with predictions which are hopefully uncorrelated. And then when combined in an ensemble or, or in another neural network downstream, uh, actually generate better and better predictions. So beyond uh, no free lunch uh, implications. It, it, would you say that it also has something to do with the fact that your uh, regime durations are you know, short enough to be kind of captured in your CNN window as opposed to, you know, something that might have longer, maybe a longer tail? Yeah, perhaps. It's, it's hard to say. Um, this gets back to the interpretability discussion. Um, <laughs> maybe... Maybe we should ask Sarah. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we we started down this path in, in talking about yeah. online learning, and uh, one of the the challenges that you raised in your slides was this issue of kind of weight transfer and the ability to kind of capture 
knowledge and project it forward to uh, to the next time step. How have you kind of dealt with that? Am I am I capturing that that issue correctly? The weight transfer. Um, yeah. So I think you know when we're doing online learning, we don't want to continuously reset the model. So we don't want to reinitialize it from scratch at every point in time, especially if the model that we had at the previous. Uh, point in time or the previous batch is actually relevant for for where we are now in time. So in that situation, we would like to transfer the weights uh, from the previous model to the next model, but that doesn't hold when we're talking about a change point. So let's say, um, you know, something happens and there's a massive structural break in financial markets, right? So now the previous model we have has really learned a representation of a world which is which no longer exists. We've we've moved on from that. Uh, when we transfer our weights from the previous point in time to the next point in time, uh, we have a, a few options, right? So the first option is something we spoke about earlier, which is really going backwards in time and trying to find uh, some optimal weights which work, and then transferring those into the model. Um, but another approach would simply be to reinitialize the weights completely. Um, which is uh, extremely detrimental in the situation where you had a, a false positive. So you made a prediction that there has been a change point, that you've uh, shifted from one regime into the next, but you didn't. Um, now, all of a sudden, you've reinitialized your model. You've forgotten everything that you learned previously um, and all for nothing. Um, so one of the things that we've uh, we've also been playing around with is kind of like partial reinitialization, which is this idea that we take our weights and we actually pass them through uh, some sort of noising function. So we add a little bit of of randomness to those weights at every single point in time to kind of keep them fresh, keep them alive, and also give the model the ability to remember some of what it's learned in the past, but not all of it. I like to call it kind of like optimal brain damage. I know that there is actually something in machine learning called optimal brain damage, and this is not it. Um, but I just I just love the name. It's kind of cool. It's like basically you have a model, you hit it on the head, and, and you hope that it, it learns something a little bit better than what it knew in the past. All of these ideas are just different things that we've tried um, because I think that – you know, to understand where we're coming from is, you know, we, uh, you know, deep learning is like the solution, right? So we we took these models and we applied it and we realized quite quickly that financial markets don't care how smart your model is. They don't care how, you know, deep the maths is or or how, you know, optimal they work on, on ImageNet or on speech recognition problems. Um, the market is is this adversarial, very complex system. It's got non-stationarity in the cross-section in the time series. It experiences these change points, which can be partial affecting part of the model or full affecting, you know, the full model itself. Uh, and they occur at kind of like a, a regular frequency. You would be surprised at how often they occur. Um, so all of the ideas that we've tried and all my whole talk at the Deep Learning in DABA was really just uh, a presentation of a whole bunch of tricks uh, that we've tried. And some of them have worked particularly well and some of them have not worked at all. Uh, I try to focus on the tricks that have worked as opposed to the <laughs> tricks that haven't. But yeah, that's really where all of this is coming from. And I think like going forward, uh, I'd like to formalize, you know, some of those ideas and, and publish them. Yeah, well, one of those tricks that caught my eye was uh, using reinforcement learning as a way to uh, I guess control the way you ensemble these models or control the 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned before, what matters more than the choice of model is the choice of hyperparameters. So for example, if we're using early stopping, which you know some people don't like, uh, I'm quite a fan of it. And the main reason why is because I'm doing continuous learning through time. I'm not training my model once, I'm training it, you know, maybe 3000 times. You know, the, the, there's a parameter there, which is the patient. So how many epochs are you willing to see without improvement before you just stop training? Um, and there's other parameters like uh, your learning rate. And both of these parameters, your patience and your learning rate, um, should probably change if you experience a different regime or if you enter into a different state. Uh, if you think that you've moved from you know, you know, one regime into another regime, it might actually make sense to increase your learning rate uh, because you want to get into, you want to push your weights to a place which matches the new regime uh, quicker. Or maybe what you want to do is you want to train for longer because you want to give your model more of an opportunity um, to actually fit the new regime. I hope that makes sense. So you can kind of think of these as the actions that a reinforcement learning agent can take. Mm -hmm. So it can change these hyperparameters uh, in the models uh, as we walk forward through time, depending on the state which it observes. So we're really using it as kind of like a meta optimization framework around each one of the individual agents in this uh, in this massive ensemble. Um, and that, uh, that's been something that's been quite fun and, and it works quite well. It's not nearly as sophisticated as some of the reinforcement learning uh, that's coming out these days. But, um, yeah, it's it's worked quite well. Nice. And that's also um, a better, a cheaper approach than just creating a bigger and bigger ensemble, right? Because what I could, you know, what you could argue is, well, why don't you just create more agents uh, with, uh, you know, higher and lower learning rates or, or different patiences? Uh, and just grow that ensemble and make it bigger and bigger. And the main reason why I would want to use reinforcement learning instead of just making this ensemble bigger and bigger is because I only have so many computers. Right. It's uh, expensive. And I have I have this this thing called a, a hard drive. Um, <laughs> it fills up very, very quickly when I'm training these models. I mean, we're producing about 200 gigs of data a week. Mm. Uh, luckily, we can delete a lot of it the next week. Um, and we can compress a lot of it, but it's a, it's a challenge to actually train massive ensembles like this. What are the other interesting tricks that I came across in your, uh, in your slides relates to kind of the challenge of identifying fundamental patterns in time series data when you can have differences in frequency and magnitude, but kind of the same underlying shape. And it, it can be difficult for networks to, uh, to figure that out. And I hadn't come across this notion of dynamic time warping before. Yeah. It's a very traditional technique. I think it's been used since the seventies. Okay. Uh, and there was a paper which came out, I think in 2017, um, actually proposing an, a loss function for neural networks, which incorporates the idea of dynamic time warping. Um, but essentially that, I mean, just to quickly explain the idea is that, if we have two time series, which are uh, exactly identical um, in the sense that they have the same waveform and they just occur over different intervals, like let's say we're looking at audio because it's mostly been used for speech recognition. And I say the word Apple and then I say it really slow, Apple. Um, the waveform 
of me saying apple is the same, um, but the duration over which it occurred is different. Uh, so it's a different time scale. And one of the challenges with that is that if I had to do a Euclidean distance between those two waveforms, I would say that those two things were very different, uh, when in fact they're actually very similar. Uh, they're the same thing. Uh, they just were said in a different way. Um, so the idea behind dynamic time warping is really that you that you drop the one uh, time series onto the one axis of a, of a matrix and you drop the other time series onto the other axis of a matrix and then you use a procedure to actually draw uh, a connection between um, between the top right hand corner and the bottom left hand corner. Now I can't remember you know for the life of me the exact details of the procedure. But the idea is that it's a it's a more optimal measure of similarity between different time series. Um, and one of the things that we've been looking at for that is really in, in time series clustering. So this is this idea of if we have a time series and we chunk it up into different subsequences, um, you know, can we measure the similarity between those things and kind of group them together in times? Time series clustering is another approach to, to change point analysis. Um, that's one of the tricks which has not been very successful. It's very computationally expensive. Uh, and so I think that some of the papers which have come out on how to incorporate that into a loss function is maybe a more interesting approach. Have you implemented any of those papers? Is that what you're doing? Or are you uh, doing it yeah. more procedurally, like you mentioned? Yeah, now we're getting into like some of the more secret source kind of stuff that that we have it with. but uh yeah loss function engineering is important um i'll just leave it at that okay interesting interesting yeah when you when i saw that in the slide i envisioned something that you would do kind of as a you know maybe even pre-processing or kind of windowing or something like that but uh the idea of doing this building this right into a loss function is kind of interesting yeah i mean there there are papers out there about it um you know, I, I recommend people go and Google it. Uh, we implemented that a while ago, though. That was probably almost 18 months ago that we looked at that. So we have touched on just a few of the tricks in this uh, set of slides, and we're starting to run out of time. You also mention and discuss in the slides time series embeddings. Uh, embeddings yeah. have yeah. become a very uh, hot topic of late. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how they apply to time series? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I'm a huge fan of, 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 um, order encoders, variational order encoders. Um, and also, you know, your, your traditional kind of dimensionality reduction techniques, multidimensional scaling, PCA, ICA, uh, FCA, all of these techniques are quite useful at, um, taking, time series which have a lot of redundancy. So there's a lot of, of correlation and actually reducing it down into a lower dimensional space, which really captures the statistical properties that are relevant. Um, so the reason why we do that is because there is a lot of correlation in financial markets. Uh, and I think that I don't want to get into the debate of, of causation and the best way to, to go about that because I'm not sure. Um, but I think that it's difficult for the models to really assign uh, importance to the different inputs when all of them look very, very similar. Um, so let's say you had stock A, B, C, and D, and uh, we know for a fact that, um, you know, through domain knowledge or whatever, that A is influencing D. Um, 
but maybe A is is also kind of influencing B, C uh, as well. Uh, so maybe the model would look at the correlations and say, well, B is maybe the influencer of, of D and it would apply, you know, the weights in that way. Uh, it's a it's a bad explanation, but it's it's very hard to tease out what is causation and what is correlation in the data. And and financial market data is incredibly correlated. So what we've been using the time series um, embeddings for uh, is really to reduce this highly correlated um, space down into uh, another subspace which has nicer statistical properties to predict. And the nice thing about decoding or autoencoding is that you then have a network that if I had to generate a prediction from this latent representation, I can actually then get it back into the original space. Uh, so maybe I have like 2000 time series, which are all very similar. Maybe the the Russell 2000 at this point in time, they're all driven by similar market forces. You know, if Trump decides to tweet about something, you know, they're all going to move in, in similar ways. And what we can do is we can really squeeze that down into a latent representation, which really captures uh, the salient features which are useful for prediction. But the other nice thing about those features is that they have good statistical properties, especially if we're talking about a variational autoencoder. Uh, and then what we do is we, we decode back into the original space uh, after we've generated our predictions in the latent space. I hope that that makes sense. You can do it much more cheaply using principal components um, and those kind of um, more linear techniques. Um, but I'm just very partial towards autoencoders and and uh, variational autoencoders. And so do you end up with uh, essentially a time series of these or a time series in this embedding space? Or are you is the embedding somehow, are you using that more statically? If that question makes sense. Yeah, so what you end up with is another time series, but just of much lower dimension right. uh, and preferably of better statistical quality, uh, which we can then generate our predictions in. But it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's still a time series um, and it kind of like preserves the, the temporal ordering, the, the ordering of the data. Um, so there are a few architectures that you can use for that. And then you would uh, you would use these embeddings as inputs to your other neural networks the the way you might with other kinds of embeddings. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and then it generates a prediction in that space, and then we can actually decode back into the original space because there is no point in predicting, let's say, um, you know, the first two principal components or or predicting you know, this uh, five-dimensional latent representation learned by an autoencoder, because I don't know how to make decisions off of that. Uh, so we need to be able to actually get it back into the original space uh, so that we can make uh, decisions about that, because it's it's no good knowing, you know, what's going to happen to the first principal component um, or to the first um, dimension in this latent representation. Uh, how does that help me make a, a construct a portfolio that somebody can invest in? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the main reason for doing that is really just that the statistical properties that you get out are better than the statistical properties you put in. You don't have as many issues with co-integration and correlation between the time series. Um, it doesn't help with uh, regime shifts, uh, which is the main focus of my research. Um, but it, it has helped in, in improving the accuracy of the models. Very early on in our chat, you mentioned uh, that 
one of the techniques you use to kind of optimize these models and, and kind of explore these tricks is ablation studies. Uh, is that worth a, a quick comment before we wrap up? I'm a huge fan of ablation studies. Yeah. But I mean, basically the idea is that if you've architected your neural network in a particular way, you can actually switch off parts of that neural network and measure the deterioration in your model's um, performance in the same language as whatever loss function you specified. And that's particularly useful when we go to investors or, or somebody who would like to understand or have some confidence in the models that we're using. We can say, well, listen, we can't tell you exactly what the functional form or, or um, the exact decision boundaries look like. But what we can tell you is that you know, these are the inputs which are contributing most to our model at this point in time. And, uh, and I stress that at this point in time, because the ablation studies, again, are applied in this kind of like online learning setting. And what's really interesting for me is just how, how much they change. I mean, you have at certain points in time, some variables are just absolutely, you know, if you took it out of your model, your model would be useless. Um, but then fast forward a year or two into the future, I mean, that variable is, is, uh, it might as well be white noise, uh, going into the model and some other variable is now driving, you know, the performance of the model. So what's really interesting to me is really the dynamics, uh, of the neural networks, what inputs are mattering at what point in time. And, uh, and then what I'm particularly interested in and something I haven't spent a lot of time on, unfortunately, is then seeing how those kind of measures of, of variable importance uh, match up to things like your your business cycle. Um, you know, if we're at the end of a bull run, you know, do we see that certain variables which we would expect to matter mattering more uh, and, and really seeing whether or not we can actually test economic theory using neural networks um, and, and go beyond just fitting a function, uh, but actually trying to understand what that function does. Uh, I hope that makes some sense, but I'm a huge fan of that particular approach. And I think, you know, anybody is interested in, in interpretability should check out some of your previous podcasts, but that's the approach that, that we've found the easiest to implement, uh, and the most useful from, um, from an insights perspective. We're not necessarily using that, uh, for any decision-making or to improve the model, but simply to understand what is going on in that model. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Stuart, any uh, words of uh, advice or pointers uh, or kind of recommended resources for folks that are interested in the application of uh, machine learning and deep learning to uh, these types of time series, whether in finance or any of the other uh, domains that you rattled off earlier? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of really, really cool applications in time series analysis. And I think that there are very strong statistical motivations to spend some time looking at change point analysis and regime shifts, but also many applied motivations. So I'd recommend students who are listening to this to really, you know, you know, pick up the cause and, and, and do some research in it. But as far as advice goes, I'd say, uh, you know, expect to be unexpected, uh, you know, or expect to be surprised. Um, because financial markets, like I mentioned earlier, are almost adversarial in the way that they behave. Uh, and many of the things which we believe work uh, in machine learning, I'm not sure that they do work. Uh, and you start to, 
identify the cracks in the arguments when you apply these techniques to problems which they were not originally intended to be used for. Um, so yeah, I would just say you're going to be uh, surprised at what you see and um, and also always be prudent. Uh, don't train a model and then see that it's getting 75% accuracy is predicting the S&P 500 and take all of your money and put it into that model because I guarantee you it is wrong uh, with that <laughs> level of accuracy. Uh, if you're getting anything above, you know, 55% accuracy, you probably have a bug. Um, yeah, that's just the reality of, of the game. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Stuart, yeah. thank it's you. Just- it's a sombering end to a great <laughs> conversation. I'm, I'm very sorry to not being like, yeah, it's great. You should go and apply machine learning to finance. It's hard. But um, it may save a listener a ton of money. <laughs> all right. I, I'll, I'll be very happy if that is the case. Awesome. Yeah. Invest in people who do this full time. That's what I'm that's what I'm suggesting. Stuart, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a great chat. Yeah, thank you very much, Sam. It was great to to chat to you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.